The scripture reading for this morning is from 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. Hear the word of our Lord. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, as we move into uh, the passage that was just read, I know some of you are maybe a little excited thinking that I'm going to explain to you what it means that Jesus went and preached the gospel to spirits who are now in prison. Uh, I'm not going to do that today. You'll have to wait for uh, another time for, for that. What we're going to do, uh, I wanted to read all of those verses to keep verse 21 in context, that there is a, uh, a typology, technically, the word is, being presented here. There is a type in Scripture that corresponds to what is taking place in the Christian life as the Christian is saved in Christ. The type is the ark. Noah's ark, uh, the Lord commanding Noah to construct an ark whereby he and his household would be saved of the flood of water coming upon the world under God's wrath. Peter says, corresponding to that, that type, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a clean conscience through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a comparison that's being made here of uh, type and fulfillment in this passage, and I just wanted to have the whole thing read to keep verse 21 in context. Now, that may have bored most of you by saying that, but what we want to do today is focus in on verse 21 particularly and ask ourselves, what in the world does it mean when verse 21 says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you? And uh, we're going to be looking at that in particular today. So would you please pray with me for the Lord's blessing, and uh, we will get into this. Father, we do pray that you would bless our time in your word. We know that as we've seen a couple weeks ago, your word is the primary means of grace that you use to strengthen us and grow us in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Father, that you would use your word this morning to sanctify us for the glory of your name to conform us more fully into the image of your beloved Son, and to equip us to live lives for his glory. Please be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, so we're currently walking through a shorter series on uh, using the means of grace to obey the command of first, Second Peter 3.18 to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as I just prayed, we already discussed the general 
idea of the means of grace. The means of grace are not uh, elements in the Christian life that save us, but they are instruments in God's hands, in God's hand, metaphorically, I guess, that he uses to strengthen and mature his people in the gift of salvation. Uh, we've already looked at the Word of God as the first and principal means of grace. Today we're going to be looking at baptism as a means of grace. Now from the beginning I want to acknowledge openly that we are definitely swimming into some deep waters when we talk about baptism as a means of grace. Not because the topic of baptism in itself is all that difficult. I just don't know why people struggle to come to a baptistic conviction of baptism. It's not that hard. My Presbyterian brethren. Um, we're swimming into some deep waters. Not because the topic of baptism in itself is all that difficult but because seeking to understand how baptism is used by God as a means of grace, that has been difficult for believers to work out throughout church history. And as I, throughout church history, you can see that just by looking back through church history, which we're gonna do some of that this morning. Some have held to baptism as a means of grace because they believe it actually imparts saving grace to people. They believe in what's known as baptismal regeneration. When you are baptized, you are born again. You are saved. You are delivered from your corruption in Adam, and you are brought into union with Christ. And on the flip side, the other extreme is baptism is simply a ceremony. It's a ritual. It's picturing something outwardly that has already taken place inwardly. But other than that, it's not actually accomplishing anything. Now, what we want to do today is look at those, not look at those two extremes, but keep those two extremes in mind and ask ourselves, is one of those right? Are both of them wrong? And if both of them are wrong, where's the balance? Is there a balance between the two? Hopefully we're going to look, see that today. Now, in the New Testament, what we find is that when the, when the Spirit of God speaks to us about the nature of baptism, it uses language that clearly indicates to us that baptism is more than just an empty ceremony. And if we ignore what the Scriptures say there, we are not listening to God's testimony concerning the importance and significance of what takes place when we're baptized. Our text today is one example of, of that reality where it states very clearly that baptism now saves you. According to this, there's a connection between God's saving grace in the life of a person and the practice of baptism. Now our question today, in light of that plain reading of the text, is what exactly does that mean? As those who hold to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as those of us who are good and solid and sound Protestants and sons and daughters of the Reformation, what does it mean when this text says that we are saved, or at least baptism now saves you? Is this really teaching that salvation comes to us through baptism? 
or that baptism as a rite or ritual actually saves us. Well, believe me, there has been a lot of discussion and debate over this teaching and what this verse means throughout church history. And so this morning, before we get into examining the language of Scripture relating to baptism, I thought it would be helpful to look at some of the different positions that have been held throughout church history relating to what this verse means. So, if you can hang with me for a little bit, there's some... Some history. I think, I think this is actually pretty fascinating. As I was typing this up, I love history. Some of you may not like history, but I love history because it gives us clarity. It helps us understand why things are the way they are right now, right? It helps us work through and process the different positions and convictions on certain matters that we see manifesting all around us in the church right now, one of them being baptism. If you want to understand why the Roman Catholics teach what they teach about baptism or why the Presbyterians teach what they teach about baptism or the Anglican Church or the Quakers, why they taught what they taught about baptism or why we as Baptists teach what we teach about baptism, you have to understand something of the history, the development and the debate that took place over the last 2,000 years-ish, right? 2,000-ish years? There we go. 2,000-ish years. That's how we would say that. Yeah, not years-ish. You got to understand something of the history. And so I want to do some of that this morning. As referring to baptism as a means of grace, as I just have indicated, this has been understood in different ways by the church in, in our history. Since the early church, in the early church, baptism was seen as something necessary to the life of the Christian. In fact, it's clear from the New Testament that it was impossible in the early church to be considered a Christian if you were not baptized in the name of Christ. Do you agree with that? Some people wouldn't agree with that. Some out there will throw out the example of the thief on the cross and say, wait a second, wasn't he a Christian? Wasn't he saved? Could he be counted as a Christian? And I say, well, yes, but let's think about that situation. The vast majority of of us in the normal process of coming to conversion, to be converted to Christ, we are not going to be converted to Christ when we're hanging on a cross, right? That that is not the rule that we see of the, the man hanging on the cross. That is the exception. And yes, that man was saved. Yes, that man was a Christian. He had true faith in Christ. And as Jesus promised him, today you will be with me in paradise. So we can hold to the fact that yes, that man was saved. And in that sense, baptism is not required or necessary to be a Christian. However, in the normal process of events, when a person is converted to Christ, the New Testament knows nothing of a person being a Christian and not being baptized in Jesus' name. On the day of Pentecost, for example, when the Jews in Jerusalem were pierced to the heart as Peter was preaching about the glories of Jesus Christ and His suffering for sinners and God exalting Him in His resurrection and making Him Lord and King of all. As Peter is proclaiming this message of Jesus, the Jews, the very Jews who had Jesus crucified, were pierced to their hearts. And they came to Peter and the brethren and they said, Brothers, tell us what we need to do. And in Acts 2.38, Peter responded by telling them what to do. He said, repent. 
Turn away from your sin, and then each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot to discuss in that verse. We're not going to go into that, all of it at the moment. But clearly, in Peter's mind, it was impossible for these people to be truly repentant and truly believing in Jesus Christ if they would not submit to Christ in the waters of baptism. Part of their repentance would be manifested by being baptized in Jesus' name. In fact, you can see the importance of baptism by citing another verse, Mark 16, 16. I know there's debate about this verse. I'm not going to get into it at the moment as to whether it belongs in the Scriptures or not. We can talk about that some other time if you want. But here in this verse, Jesus says clearly, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. To be baptized is presented here as connected intimately to whether or not a person has true saving faith. In other words, what I'm saying is that these verses indicate to us that it is impossible in the early church's mind, it would have been impossible to think of someone being a true Christian who had not been baptized as a Christian. Baptism would be an outward means of expressing the true repentance and true faith that was in their hearts. Therefore, without that external rite of baptism, they had no ground to claim that they had true repentance and true faith in their heart. The external rite was the means of proclaiming and declaring that faith. Now, this is what I believe the New Testament teaches. We're going to get more into that in a minute. But it's in light of this emphasis on the centrality of baptism in the Christian life that over time, this connection between baptism and salvation began to take on an element in church history that was not intended by the teaching of the New Testament. Does that make sense? That was probably a complicated sentence. Over time, this connection between baptism and being a true believer began to take on an element that is not present in Scripture. As many of you will know, in time, baptism slowly began to be viewed not simply as an expression of true faith in Christ, but as a mechanism that brings a person into salvation in Christ. This belief reached its fullest expression in what we now know as the Roman Catholic position on baptism as a sacrament. For Roman Catholics, baptism is a means not of declaring faith in Christ, but a means by which saving grace is imparted to a sinner. So, for example, according to the Roman Catholic Catechism, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, it says, Baptism not only purifies from all sin, but also makes the one being baptized a new creature. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17 language. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Roman Catholics are saying that verse is fulfilled in the person who is baptized, fulfilled by baptism. So baptism not only purifies from all sin, but also makes the one being baptized a new creature. It makes that person an adopted son of God who has become a partaker of the divine nature, a member of Christ and co-heir with him, a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, this is why Roman Catholics refer to the baptismal font as the laver of regeneration. It is actually that which causes someone to be born again. Now, the Protestants during the time of the Reformation recognized that if that teaching is true, something has happened to the way in which a sinner receives salvation in Christ's name. And it's no longer now on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, which is very clearly the teaching of the Scriptures. Now a person has to be saved by submitting to the rite of baptism. So what has become of salvation in that scenario? What, what happens in order to receive salvation? What does a sinner have to do now? A sinner has to be baptized. You've just turned salvation into a works-based system. The Protestants of the time of the Reformation and even pre-Reformation recognized, even back to the 1100s, they recognized that that was an errant teaching that was heresy and it distorted the gospel. However, as the Protestants reacted to that position, they wound up splitting off into different ideas of how God actually does administer grace through baptism. So even though they were united in their conviction that the Roman Catholic teaching is wrong, they could not come together in one solid core group and agree upon what baptism actually is and what it accomplishes. So Luther, the one we remember as the, the first real reformer, I would just say he's the first one the Lord used to bring about widespread reformation. But Luther, for, on his part, still believed that God used baptism to impart the new birth. It says in the uh, Luther's smaller catechism, I have it back on my shelf, they've held true to Luther's teachings on this. It says in there that baptism works forgiveness of sins and rescues from death and the devil and gives eternal salvation to the one being baptized. But Luther was very quick to make a qualification or a clarification to that. He said it only does this if it is administered under the proper teaching of the Word of God and is connected in the person being baptized by faith. So you have to have the right word, the right gospel being preached over the waters of baptism. And then there must also be faith in the person being baptized in order for baptism to work its, I almost said work its magic, but to work its work. So he said, it is God's word that puts these blessings of salvation into baptism, end quote. Meaning that by the truth and the promises of God contained in the word of the gospel, baptism is made effectual. And what that means is that because Rome had abandoned the gospel, its baptism was not effective. It didn't actually accomplish its work because they had abandoned the Christ of scriptures. And if you're wondering, well, wait a second, if the person being baptized must have faith in order for baptism to work its work in their lives, why did they still baptize infants? Well, you can read in the smaller catechism that the Lutherans, uh, the official teaching of the Lutheran church is that infants can have faith. And so therefore, babies are able to have faith, and as sinners, even babies need what God offers them in baptism. Now, the Anglican church, the Church of England, had a similar view to this. You guys still with me? Yeah? yeah? Some of you like history? Yes? Woo! Understanding the positions? Okay. The Anglican Church, or the Church of England, had a similar view of baptism. Uh, they still believed that faith was required in order for baptism to work its work. 
However, they did not believe that children had the ability to exercise faith when they came to the waters of baptism. Therefore, the faith of the parents or the guardians that were submitting the baby to baptism became effectual in place of the child. So the parent's faith or the guardian's faith is what made baptism work for that child that was being baptized. So when the parent brought the child and submitted it for baptism, it was their faith in the truth and then the parent's commitment to raise that child in the truth that God honored and granted salvation to that infant. Now, the Presbyterians developed a different understanding of baptism as a means of grace. They did not believe that salvation was granted to the baby that was being baptized, but rather they taught, and they believed that scriptures taught, that baptism seals the promise of salvation to that infant that is being baptized. So the parents bring the child, the Christian parents bring their child to baptism in order to have the promise of God sealed to that child through the waters of baptism. Now, if you want to ask a Presbyterian, can you tell me exactly what that means? I, I, let me say it this way. When I have asked that question of Presbyterians, can you tell me what is actually happening in baptism for the infant? I've never gotten an answer. Not an adequate one. It's always, well, the promise is being sealed to that child. Well, okay. Are they saved? No. Not yet. They have to believe. Okay, so what does baptism do to the child to seal the promise of salvation to that child that isn't already applicable to any other person in the world? The call of the gospel is repent and believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What does baptism do that's different than that strict call of Scripture? Never gotten an answer for that. But... Presbyterians still hold to the fact that baptism seals the promise of salvation in the gospel to the baby who is being baptized. And in that sense, baptism becomes guaranteed to that infant so long as that infant has faith in time. That infant can, as it grows, can reject that seal of salvation, the promise of salvation, by not believing in the gospel. Now, the Quakers, the Quackers, as some have referred to them as, the Quakers reacted to all of this simply by saying, no, water baptism is no longer even applicable in the New Testament church. The only thing that matters in the church is spirit baptism. What's referred to in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 as being baptized by the Spirit into one body, being made members of Christ by the baptism of the Spirit. The Quakers looked at that verse and said, that is what is being applied to the believers in the New Testament. Water baptism has been completely absorbed by that and no longer should be practiced. Now, obviously, anyone reading the scriptures would know that's not a valid position to take. Now, it's my conviction that the Baptist, because they were and still are known for tenaciously reading the scriptures, right? They used to be known for that. It's my conviction that the Baptists are the ones that really reached the apex of Reformation and came back to the biblical teaching on baptism as a means of grace. Baptism for the Baptist was a means of grace not because it imparted grace, nor even because it sealed or guaranteed the promise of grace, 
to the person being baptized. Rather, it was a means of grace because of what baptism was signifying. It was signifying something for the person being baptized. And that is how God strengthened them in the grace of Christ Jesus, by beholding and submitting to what baptism was picturing and signifying. The 1689 Baptist Confession, I think, captures this perfectly. Those of you who are not coming to our Sunday school time and going through the confession, I urge, I exhort, I encourage, I plead with you. Come, take, come be a part of that. We're probably not going to get to the chapter on baptism for a number of years. But <laughs> it's a great discussion. I think there's rich history and a, and a rich theology that is communicated to us in that confession that we would be stupid to ignore. So the 1689, what they said concerning baptism, they said that baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign. It is a sign of something, meaning it is pointing to something else. It is, it is a ceremony. It is a ritual. It is a picture. It is a sign that is communicating something of a reality that is not contained in baptism itself, but baptism is pointing to that reality. What did the Baptist believe that baptism was signifying? Well, for the early Baptists, baptism was a sign of a person's fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection. That you are entering into the waters of baptism. You are being submerged under those waters. And you are being brought out to walk in newness of life with Jesus Christ. That is a picture of regeneration and union with the Lord Jesus. That when you are united with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes your soul and unites you with Jesus in such a way that the death He died for sin causes you to die to sin. Right? When you are united to Christ, Jesus died for sin. And when you are united to him, you die to sin. And when you submit to that, that picture of going under the waters with Jesus, you are testifying and proclaiming and even calling upon the Lord Jesus and saying, Lord, I am one whom you have done this great work in. And then you come out of those waters. It's that picture of being raised to walk in newness of life with Jesus Christ. That now you've not only died to your old self, but now you are filled with the Spirit of God and you are invigorated to walk with Christ in a new way. The way you pursued sin in the past now becomes the way you pursue Christ in the present. Think about that. This is a tangent here, but think about Aside, let me say it. It's as a rabbit trail. Think about how you pursued sin when you were an unbeliever. Think about the joy that you had in sin when you were an unbeliever. Think about how ravenous you were at times to go partake in that sin. Are you that ravenous in your pursuit of Christ? Has all the energy that you used to spend on satisfying and gratifying the ungodly lusts of your fallen nature, has all of that energy now been transformed into a holy pursuit of Jesus? If that has not happened, you are not saved. I'm not saying that you can't struggle with sin. 
believers will continue struggling with sin until we lay these bodies of death down in the dirt. But here's the difference. Galatians 5.24 says, All who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Note the language. Paul does not say that those who belong to Christ have died to sin completely. It says they have died to their passions and their desires to walk in the way of sin. We still, as believers, you testify, you amen this, if this is true in your life, this is true in my life, as believers, as I walk out in Christ, I still stumble into the very sins that Christ raised me out of. I still struggle to hold fast to Jesus with the true faith. I still get depressed. I still wake up dreary and weary of living the Christian life. It happens. I still get tempted by things that I used to run headlong into when I was an unbeliever. But the difference is that I no longer want to run in those things. When I fall and I stumble, I hate myself. The language of Ezekiel 36. I loathe myself because I am giving myself over to that which the Lord saved me from. This is why the Puritans would define conversion, being converted to Christ, as a change of the affections primarily. It's a change in what you desire to do more than it is a decision that you are making. That's conversion. Now, where, where was I here? The Baptist. The Baptist believed that baptism, see, all of this is what is being pictured in baptism. This is a sign in baptism. And when someone who has had this saving reality worked into their hearts, when someone comes to Christ in the waters of baptism, what is being signified in those waters is ministering tangibly to that person, relating to them what has actually taken place spiritually. God is using this external tool to confirm and encourage the true faith that is already existing in that believer. And that's why the Baptist held to believer's baptism. Right? That there's nothing saving about baptism in and of itself. There's nothing in baptism that causes an unbeliever to become a believer. Baptism is for those who are already believing, those who are consciously making the decision to follow after Christ as a result of being born again. And that first step is to come to Christ in baptism. So it's a sign. The Baptist said it's a sign of a person's fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection. It's a sign of their being engrafted into Christ. I love that language. Being, you think of what does it mean to be grafted into something, right? The, the natural and the unnatural branches, Romans 11. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. What does it mean to be a branch plugged into the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, you're alive in him. You're gaining life from him. Baptism is a sign of that reality having taken place in a person's life. It's a sign of the remission or the cancellation of your sins, it is a picture where God is communicating to you in a tangible way the reality that he has forgiven you of your sins through the blood of Christ. You are now set free from them and they will never be tied to you again. Remission of sin. Cancellation. 
And then it is a sign of giving up, it says in the confession. It is a sign of you giving yourself up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. That's being communicated there. Commitment. Covenanting with God to give yourself over to the one who gave himself for you. All of that is being pictured in in baptism. Now we're going we're gonna to come back to this next week. And we will talk about the significance of baptism from the Scriptures next week. I was hoping to get to that today. I'd rather not rush through that. But let me end on this question. And, and maybe, I hope, what will be an answer. If, as the 1689 Baptist Confession says, if baptism is simply a sign... It's an external sign of an internal reality, a spiritual reality. If it is just a sign, then how can it be used as a means of grace? Because a means of grace, by definition, is something that God is using to grow you in grace. It's actually affecting you. It's impacting you. If it's just a sign of something else, if baptism is just a sign that is pointing away from itself to something else then really doesn't it just become a ceremony, a ritual that we are submitting to that is maybe proclaiming a message but not accomplishing anything in our hearts? Well, let me answer that, first of all, by acknowledging, yes, baptism is a ceremony. It is a ritual. It is an ordinance. But it is not an empty, meaningless ceremony. It is not an empty ritual. Something is being accomplished in baptism that according to the scriptures cannot be communicated in any other way. May help to read something here. I got got a minute or two. Probably the most helpful comments on this, what is being accomplished in baptism, in my opinion, come from a man named Robert Spiney. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. It's S-P-I-N-N-E-Y. We have a little booklet back there on uh, believer's baptism by this man. And um, what he wrote concerning what's taking place in baptism, I think, is very helpful. So is baptism just an empty ceremony? Is it something that we're doing, we're submitting to, but isn't really all that important, isn't accomplishing anything in us? Spiney would say no. Here are his words. Baptism is a covenant transaction. Baptism is a covenant transaction in which God and the believer are speaking to each other. I like that. I like this language. In baptism, God, this is still spiny. In baptism, God is speaking a message of assurance and confirmation to the believer. This is a sign of God's promises that he's made to us in Jesus Christ. And when you submit to baptism, that, that sign is God speaking those promises to you all over again in a different way. 
He is giving you assurance. He is giving you confirmation that these promises are true. And you, as one who in faith is submitting to baptism, these promises are true for you. So in baptism, God is speaking a message of assurance and confirmation to the believer. Spiney goes on, and in baptism, the Christian is also speaking a message of faith and commitment to God in Christ. So it's this covenant transaction that's taking place. It's something that is like a document. It's like, it's like a, uh, what do you call an official document that, that has, what? Yes, thank you. It's a contract in a sense. It is, it is where you and God are coming together and God is declaring to you, I have made full provision for your salvation in Jesus Christ. I've laid your sins upon him. I've dumped out the full weight of my wrath upon my beloved son that you deserve. I've raised him from the dead to prove that the sacrifice was worthy. And now I promise you that if you come to him, I will save you. That's what God is saying. And then in baptism, we come to God and we say, Father, we will have you. I will have you on those terms. I will be saved on those terms. I will accept the way that you have decreed to save sinners for your own eternal glory. I will receive that. You come to baptism and you submit to the waters of baptism. That is what you are declaring to God. It's more than just an empty ceremony. It is communicating something. It is God communicating something to you and it is you communicating something back to God in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we end, it might help to think of this in relation to a common ceremony that we, that we do, well, we used to do every day. <laughs> until COVID happened. Um, and I don't mean any offense to anyone here who would rather not shake hands with, with people. But think back before COVID. When you extended your hand out to shake someone else's hand and that person withdrew from you and did not shake your hand, what did that communicate to you? Huh? Unfriendly. Yeah, unfriendly. It's not, a, I'm not accepted here. There's not the friendship here. There, there's something that's between us that's a barrier and a hindrance to us. Now, shaking hands, there's nothing magical, nothing magical about shaking someone else's hand. That's, that's a social construct that we have. There's, there's nothing inherent in shaking a hand that means anything in and of itself, but it's what's being communicated through that act that is resonating with our hearts. So when I go to shake someone's hand and they grab my hand and they even put their other hand on my other one and then I put my hand on theirs and then we draw each other in closer and we say, oh man, brother, I love you. That's communicating something to me. That's saying this, this person and I are in fellowship together. We are walking in union together. We have, we have a friendship. And it doesn't have to spiral down into the hug or anything like that to communicate that. But this is kind of what's become our way of greeting one another with a with a holy kiss, right? Now, before COVID, when you would shake, go to shake someone's hand and they withdrew from you and would not shake your hand, normally that was a sign of resistance, of obstinance, of uh, factionalism, of not receiving you, at least at bare minimum, it's a sign that this person was not welcoming you in. 
I think that that helps us understand in some ways what is happening in baptism. It is a ceremony, just like shaking someone else's hand, but it is communicating something much deeper. Just like a handshake is communicating something much deeper, or the withdrawal of a handshake would be communicating something deeper. So, so is baptism an empty ceremony? The Baptist would say no. Does baptism save you? It depends on what you mean by that. And we will look at that next week. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the grace of your word. Lord, we thank you for the understanding that you give to us through your word, by your spirit. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love for us that moved you and led you to die in our place. We, Lord, we joyfully confess we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but it's you that lives in us. We know that, Lord. We recognize you living in us by your Spirit. And Lord, we acknowledge the life we live now, we want to live, and we do live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Father, we have testified of that conviction and that belief as believers through baptism. And I pray you would continue to confirm those promises to our hearts by your Spirit and lead us as believers to walk in that newness of life that we've received in Jesus' name. Father, for those who don't know you, I pray you would save them. I pray you would awaken them to see the glory of Jesus and to come running. Father, may we have that joy of seeing new converts testify of their profession of faith and that work of the Spirit of God being genuine and true in their hearts to testify of those realities in baptism. Father, we pray for that. It's a miracle of your hand if anyone is saved. And so we pray to you and ask that you would continue doing that great miraculous work for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing our closing hymn. Hear the benediction, but don't leave yet. Or do you not know, Romans 6, 3 and 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And I pray you find full measure of the Spirit of God to enable you to walk in that newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen.